0: Welcome to kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind
1: the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on kite Line, we hope to share these words
0: across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. In a new report called U.S. Prison Population Trends, Massive Buildup and Modest Decline, the Sentencing Project reveals that at the rate the states and the federal government are decarcerating, it will take 72 years, until 2091, to cut the U.S. prison population in half. By the end of 2017, the U.S. was incarcerating 1.4 million people for a decline of 7% since 2009, when the prison population reached its highest level. Between 1972 and 2009, the U.S. prison population enlarged almost 700 percent. Decarceration rates have varied. 39 states and the federal government reduced their numbers of prisoners by the year 2017. Since reaching their peak levels, five states – Alaska, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, and Vermont – decreased their prison populations by 30 percent. However, of the 39 states that cut their incarceration levels, they did so by less than 5 percent. Arkansas tops the 11 states that had the highest ever prison populations in 2017. This week, we share part of a recent roundtable on incarceration here in Bloomington. This event was part of a series across southern Indiana, as community members hurt by incarceration and their families come together to discuss their experiences and work together to understand this complex web of social control. Ecarceration involves local jails, county governments and for-profit shackle companies. There's a growing movement against incarceration, and you can find more information about it at NotBetterThanJail.org. Locally, the Monroe County Jail was embroiled in controversy this week after acknowledging that it would be forcing prisoners to prepare the holiday luncheon for county employees. Under public pressure, jail commander Crow agreed to pay the prisoners $15 an hour rather than compelling their labor for free. However, the pay will go straight into the prisoners' commissary accounts. This means the money will eventually be funneled back into county coffers as prisoners spend it on steeply marked up food and basic goods. And now we share some firsthand experiences from folks affected by incarceration.
2: I'm from New Albany, originally from Paoli, Indiana. I'm just going to give you a little background. In 2013, I was arrested with uh, heavy drug charges, dealing charges. Since 2013, my case was pending, and I'd hit my bottom, I went to recovery homes, I changed my life, uh, I did everything I could to prove that I was a productive member of society. In the meantime, God blessed me with an opportunity to start my own construction company, and it I excelled in that, and then through savings, uh, with the heroin epidemic, people, my friends was dying, uh, that was still an active addiction, so I decided to take my savings and open a recovery home, which is called the Breakaway Recovery Home in New Albany. It's a 14-bed facility. Uh, we actually celebrate two years, October the 30th, of uh, being open. Uh, we also have a house next door, which has 10 women in it. So we have 24 women on campus. Uh, once they graduate the Breakaway, they move over into the three-quarter house, and uh, they do budgeting classes and, and get ready to get their own apartments. Uh, With that being said, the whole time these charges is over my head uh, from out of Paoli, Indiana. I had uh, put myself on community corrections, volunteered for it in 2000 uh, for a year prior to sentencing. And the judge, trial judge, sentenced me to 30 years in prison, due 15. Uh, I took a blind plea and it was a new judge. And so I went to prison and my out date was 2032. In the meantime, uh, it was actually uh, October of last year, I'd lost the appeal. The appeals court sided with the trial judge. And I'd gotten to in constructing our future in prison and stuff, you know. And um, so anyway, on New Year's Eve, uh, December the 31st of 2018, at 4.07 p.m., (laughs) the Indiana Supreme Court overturned my conviction. Four out of five judges voted for me to be immediately released. And... Through the uh, Indiana Supreme Court paperwork, uh, since Floyd County Community Corrections had worked with me and pretty much said that they would take me for however long long that need be through Floyd County Community Corrections. So January the 16th, I was released, and the trial judge brought me back to Orange County and put me on house arrest for 10 years, 7 months, and so many days. My outdate, my whole time is to be served with no step-down program on house arrest till November the 9th of 2029 is when I'm off and put an ankle bracelet on me. So with that being said, luckily that I got to go right back into my construction company to where at this point in my life, it's not a financial burden to me. I mean, it is when I'm trying, I don't have a home. I'm kind of renting a home and stuff, you know, um, to where it would be hard to, and I actually live at a three quarter house to where I have minimum rent with the other ladies because to with that amount of money, it's hard to pay the state of Indiana three hundred fifty dollars a month and then try to finance a house and buy my own house um which I'm cleaning my wreckage of my past up as well and i and i'm fifty three years old, and I worry you know about my business, you know construction's iffy and uh what happens, you know, in two or three years, if I can't work, how am I going to, if, where am I going to go at this point in my life? If I do am able to clean my credit up and buy a house, am I going to be able to make my house payments? Or am I going to have to live in this house with all these other women? Because it's where, where I can afford to live. Uh, Because our rent's like $300 a month for each girl because of the utilities and all that. So we live really reasonable. But there's 10 women in this house. So I don't know how this is going to burden me in my future. Right now I'm okay because I make good money. And I worry about that because I don't know what's going to happen. And if I don't pay this, what's the repercussions from it? How far behind? The total amount for me is $48,000 is what my court papers show. And I didn't, I was going to bring them with me, but I forgot them. I apologize. Actually, November the 9th is when I'm counting down the 10 years of being on house arrest being the executive director of the breakaway recovery home i have the opportunity to work with a lot of women that are coming straight out of prison the indiana prisons jails i know we've got include myself we got four of us over there on an ankle bracelet and then we've got about probably between 8 and 10 that's been on house arrest at one point or another uh, or another excuse me uh most of them wasn't successful because a lot of them is when they come into the breakaway They don't have jobs, so you got a mother trying to get her kids back, trying to pay rent there, getting behind on rent. Then she's got to pay the the house arrest, so it's basically setting them up for failure. And and I don't know how they're ever going to make it on the ankle bracelet. The good news is, is you know, in their situations as we're working with them on rent and then the recovery works. You know, it's helping them out. But what's going to happen when they leave the breakaway? Basically, the way I feel is it's setting them up for failure. How can they do it? They're they're at minimum wage jobs. Some of them is only making $7.25 an hour. Their rent's $100 a week at the breakaway. That's not even living, trying to rent an apartment, which, you know, I don't know about up here, but apartment rental down there, the cheapest you can find is $6.50 a month plus utilities. They cannot do it and get their kids back it's not an option and we're at our house even the three quarter house they're they can't live there with their kids or we wouldn't have you know there'd be so many ki- where well, there's not enough room for everybody so, so there's a really big gap in the system and it's kind of heartbreaking because we got these women that's graduating on the ankle bracelet they don't have no option they're trying to get their kids back so i just i'm up here just to share my experience and see um, what I can do to help. And I appreciate you. Thank you.
3: So coming into the program, I came out of prison, signed into reentry court. I was successful on reentry court for exactly two years. My graduation date was the date that I got rearrested. While I was in court, the cops were raiding my house um, and found a firearm that belonged to my fiancé. I was in turn charged with violent felon in possession of a firearm and sentenced to eleven more years in prison. So I battled with that for a long time because it was a gun that wasn't mine in a house that I wasn't in um, but my hands were tied so i I went back to prison with the understanding that as long as I'd done what I needed to do, I would be signed back out into reentry court. So I went and went to prison for a year and a half, got signed back out to house arrest. Uh, The house arrest that I was on was GPS monitored. Um, It was the most extensive house arrest that they had. I had a son that was just over a year old uh, fiance that was trying to put herself through college in a house. So I was willing to do anything that I could to get out and still am. So as of the 29th of this month, it will be another two years. I'm, I'm coming back up to my graduation date again. I went in and met with my case manager the other day and was told that everybody has talked and I'm. they think that I'm ready and everything's great and I don't have any more meetings with my case manager and the only thing holding me back from graduation is an $18,000 bill. So for the f- two years that I've this last two years instead of them saying hey you should be paying this down you're gonna have to have this paid before you can graduate I make really good money I'm in, in the union since being out I've bought multiple multiple cars I've my fiance's going to IU to get her master's degree we you know I've, I've spent lots of money on things that I wouldn't have had I known so I walked out of my case managers meeting defeated. It's a $6,000 bill is what they're charging me for just the house arrest. I was on house arrest for four months. So whenever I got that, you know, I try not to be bitter about it. But seeing people that come out in my situation, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've, I've, I've made it so that I, I've worked since I was a kid. I, I moved out of my parents' house when I was 14 years old, and I've never went without a job or some kind of financial support. Um, but seeing people that are coming out in the same position that I'm in, there's got to be something done. There's got to. I, I Mark my words, the 29th of this month, I'm going to walk in with a smile on my face, and I'm going to sit $18,000 down on the desk, and I'm never going to walk back in that building again. But it's going it's to take absolutely everything. You know, I've got every car that I own up for sale. I've got every dollar that I've got in my savings account ready to be pulled out. I applied for a credit card for, with a $5,000 limit, you know, like I'm doing things that I shouldn't do, but it's all to get out of a system that I shouldn't be in. You know what I mean? When I, when I went to prison the first time I came out with the full intentions of helping everybody that I possibly can to not ever have to walk the road that I walked. I feel like so far I'm, I've succeeded in that, but Knowing that there's people out there that aren't in the position that I'm in that can't get the jobs that I can get, that it's terrible. You know, to to I've I've got friends that are in drug court and reentry court that have literally lasted six and seven years over failure to take financial responsibility, and yet they've raised kids, they've they've kept themselves with a roof over their head and a vehicle to get back and forth to work, but to be a felon in the position that we're, that a lot of us are in, a lot of people similar to my situation, it's the deck stacked against us. I, I came in here because I'm hoping to hear somebody with a solution, you know, because I go in with a smile on my face once a month on a Tuesday and I see the judge and then I walk out feeling like I'm just that number, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just that success story that they can talk about but in all reality if i was to walk in there and cry and get on my knees and beg and that that, that does nothing you know i mean to to be able to change every part of my life and and do absolutely everything different than i've ever done before and really the only reward is freedom you know and that's that's scary to think that I'm going to put my family in so much financial burden for freedom that I feel I've earned. I've been in the system since I was 13 years old. I'm labeled a violent felon because I was a drug dealer. I have a possession of a handgun by a violent felon, not because I was violent, but because I had a drug problem that in turn caught you know, got me in trouble. So I don't know. There's gotta be something done. There's gotta be a solution. There's there's too many good people sitting in prison. I've I've served a lot of my life locked in a cage and I've met some of the best people that I've ever come across and some of the most genuine not got what you know, not got the chance because of because of the failure to have housing or the failure to, to for someone to sit across the table from me and be like, nah, I don't know if you'll be able to pay I don't know if you'll be able to find a job, so they just got to sit in prison, and that's sad.
4: Some reflections from a family member of a person on house arrest. For my loved one, when he was deciding whether to be released from jail onto house arrest, he would have agreed to most anything. It wasn't much of a choice for him. The fees were approximately $850 immediately upon agreement to be placed on house arrest. He must pay $112 a week, almost $450 a month, and various other fees. So far his fees are almost $1,600 after being on house arrest for just six weeks. My loved one has challenges with ADHD, traumatic brain injury, and substance use disorder. He needs coaching and support to understand how to complete the house arrest schedule, who to call with any questions, how and where to pay fees. He was given these instructions in one meeting and handed a handful of papers with rules. These papers didn't adequately explain to him how to complete his schedule, how to pay his fees, etc. He is not assertive, is extremely anxious about these meetings, and just tries to be compliant and get through them, not asking questions. This has led to him completing the forms wrong and being told he's not taking this seriously. He's also been told that his family shouldn't be doing things for him. He is responsible. There's no value given to working with supportive family members who want to help him succeed. No one has asked him what his challenges are or what led to his involvement with the justice system. He has been lectured and scolded repeatedly. No positive reinforcement has been provided to him for anything he has accomplished. He is not treated with any worth or dignity. He has no driver's license and lives with his family in the county. The only way he can get to and from mandated treatment, A.A.N.A. meetings, probation meetings, court, etc., is if his family can take him. Everyone in the family is working and has limited availability to drive him. There has been no consideration to any of these challenges. He was told to get a bike or a scooter. Riding either of these is extremely dangerous on the roads to and from his home. He is set up to fail right out of the gate. His family is burdened. He is mandated to obtain treatment, however no one discussed with him his ability to pay or asked about his insurance situation or provided specific information to him about where and how to find affordable options. His insurance won't cover treatment. The first place he went, he was told it would cost $200 a day for IOP and that he was recommended to attend three times a week. At $600 a week, plus $112 of house arrest fees per week, That would have brought his total up to $712 a week, or approximately $2,850 a month. Who can afford this? No one offered to help him sort this out. Without family to help him and no other support, he was set up to fail. He's mandated to get a job, yet needs to schedule a week in advance to leave the house, has no transportation, needs an employer to sign a verification of employment if hired, has to submit the schedule a week in advance, must schedule work around A.A.N.A. treatment, and probation meetings. No one has asked, but he does not have a high school diploma. He is set up to fail. He's not allowed errand time. This means he cannot do the following. Go grocery shopping. Get his hair cut. Take out the garbage. Mow the grass. Spend any time outside unless getting out of a car to attend a sanctioned meeting, etc. He is set up to fail. He has no felony charges, has not been charged with any violent crimes, has harmed no one physically or verbally. He is not a danger to the community. Mowing his grass and taking out his trash poses no risk to society. The message he is receiving are that he is a threat to society. Not worthy of dignity and respect, not worthy of kindness even. These are not conditions that inspire change. This is an unsustainable program that leaves people mentally and financially beaten down. It burdens families and creates secondary harm he is set up to fail. He is a human and is worthy. If we want productive and healthy members of society, this is not the way.
1: The first thing that I'm going to share with you is um, from the Biometrics and Biostatistics International Journal in 2017. This is an article about the impact of electronic monitoring on recidivism rates Uh, and it's a secondary data analysis, so an analysis of other data. Part of the research that I want to read to you is simply um, what this article concluded about the main reasons that um, courts, counties, and states are using electronic monitors. The main objectives for finding ways to ease overcrowding in prisons and reduce recidivism are driven by economic and political pressures. The innovation of electronically monitoring offenders might turn out to be an inferior way of reducing recidivism and may even compromise the safety of the community. The electronic monitoring system is an example of disruptive innovation in government by delivering less direct community supervision and rehabilitation services to more offenders, unquote. So what this research points to is Uh, The ways in which electronic monitoring is assumed in and of itself to be a service, to be rehabilitative, and to be support, when in fact uh, it is none of those things, and it can therefore justify taking away some of those things which people desperately need, particularly the support network services. The second article I'm sharing with you is from the Pretrial Justice Institute from the Pretrial blog. Uh, an article posted in 2018. From a legal standpoint, in the pre-trial phase, practices must weigh in favor of liberty, with exceptions only when court appearance and public safety cannot be reasonably managed in the community. Moreover, when conditions of release are set, they must adhere to the principle of least restrictive conditions, not it's better than being in jail. As a practical matter, many people experience EM to be very invasive, with many of the consequences associated with detention, still quoting, from a research standpoint, practitioners should consider whether EM actually accomplishes what it is supposed to accomplish before trial, which is promoting public safety and court appearance. A 2011 survey of research on pretrial EM found that utilizing EM as a condition of pretrial release does not reduce failure to appear, or re-arrest. Um, So, and this is in line with the other research findings uh, that I have seen which is simply that what people need pre-trial in order to show up to uh, their hearings are number one, effective notices, they actually need to get the notices, and number two, transportation. Those two things, and the bail project is very clear on this, are what people need in order to fulfill the conditions of a pre-trial release on their own recognizance. The third article of the four that I'm sharing with you today is from the US Department of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, the National Institute of Justice. This is a 2011 brief about electronic monitoring. And these are the findings of the National Institute of Justice on the effects of electronic monitoring on personal relationships. Quoting, many probation officers and offenders believe that monitoring has a negative impact on offenders' relationships with their spouses children, and friends. 43% of the offenders believed monitoring had a negative impact on their partners because it created an inconvenience. Side note, I'm going to stop saying the word offenders because I hate it. Coming out of my mouth, I'm going to say people or something else like that, so I'm going to deviate from direct quotation. Of the officers interviewed, 89% felt that people on EM's relationships with their significant others changed because of being monitored. One person said the electronic monitoring system serves as a scarlet letter. Another reported, every time it goes off, we think the police are coming to arrest me. Perhaps the most poignant comments concern the effects on children. One person said, I've got a child who straps a watch on his ankle to be like daddy. Another said, when it beeps, the kids worry about whether the probation officer is coming to take me to jail. The kids run for it when it beeps. This section immediately following is about perceptions of the effects on employment and housing. People on EM and officers alike were almost unanimous in their belief that the visibility of the monitoring systems makes it much more difficult for people to obtain and keep a job. People told stories of job interviews taking on a different tenor as soon as an interviewer noticed the devices. In addition, sometimes the systems would issue an alarm because the signal had been lost when when people were inside a building. They would then have to take a break from work and walk outside, often for 15 minutes, before the signal was reestablished. This did not please employers. Of the people on EM interviewed, 22% said they had been fired or asked to leave a job because of electronic monitoring. Of that group, 32% assigned the cause to signal loss. Others cited various reasons, such as limits on their flexibility related to work hours or distance from work. 5% said they were fired because their bosses did not want customers to see the monitoring devices. The last piece I'm sharing with you is from the journal Federal Probation, a journal of correctional philosophy and practice. Despite the growing popularity of electronic supervision tools, the bulk of research fails to find a significant crime reduction benefit from using electronic supervision. This is also in line with what I understand about the research in general, that there is not a reduction in recidivism with Electronic monitoring, just as there is also not an improvement in people showing up to court hearings when electronic monitoring is used pre trial. I could go on and just say the kind of simple conclusion that that leads us to, which is since electronic monitoring doesn't actually help either reduce recidivism or show up to trial, we think the best thing is to let people out on their own recognizance where they can await trial with the support system that they need, providing the support to their families that their families need, sustain their forward motion in terms of jobs and education, and avoid the humiliation, the stigma, and the stress of electronic monitoring. We don't think that this means we need to build any new jails. Indiana, counties all over the state are under intense pressures to build more jails because of the end of money bail coming up and because of the sentencing redefinition. Um, If people are let out on their own recognizance to await trial or to do their probation or parole under regular community supervision, we will need no more jails. And we also very much support the end of cash bail, which the Supreme Court has mandated, but which is likely to be only unevenly applied because of the intense prejudices of bail itself. And to end, I just want to read... One exchange between one of the uh, service providers, one of the companies that offers electronic monitoring in Indiana, Community Solutions, and our state rep, Matt Pierce. This is from a hearing in August of this year, or maybe the earliest days of September. Representative Pierce, regarding electronic monitoring, we're trying to go to a system where your ability to pay won't determine whether you get out of jail before your trial. What happens if the person can't afford to pay for the ankle bracelet? Community Solutions. We've looked at 68 counties. Sliding fee scales don't exist as a norm. If you can't pay for your electronic monitoring, it is not an option for you, so you will stay in jail. Representative Pierce. So we've just replaced one barrier based on money with another? Community Solutions, yes. Representative Pierce. How much of this might be from the companies that provide these services out actively marketing them to the counties? Or do you think it's just, well, if I have a monitor and something goes bad, well, I did my best? What is driving it?
0: This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.